the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Episode 39 is the fourth of four programs about lunar dust. Now recognised as a serious problem to be overcome, much effort is being made to understand and mitigate dust. One strategy being considered is that of a layered defence. Who better to advise on that than someone who's actually been to the moon and has first-hand experience of it? So our next speaker... Um, probably has more experience with lunar dust than most of the rest of us. Um, We will be hearing from uh, Jack Schmidt on dust and the layered defense. Um, And so we'll work on getting those slides up here in just a second, and then Jack can take it away. Okay. Well, it's great to be with everybody. Uh, Enjoyed the presentations up to now. Uh, We were asked to uh, look at the top dust impacts on Artemis exploration, and I would give you these two. Uh, The EMU, uh, all included, is the primary vector for dust in to the lunar cabin. Uh, The first solution, which I've advocated for 50 years, is to have EMU surfaces, and I would add to that the sample bag surfaces, by the way, reject dust automatically. If you don't take dust into the cabin, you have much less of a problem. Uh, an alternative, not quite so good because it takes time and mass, but is a disposable cover for the suit and the PLIS, one per astronaut and one per EVA. I I seriously consider a non-solution is Apollo-style brushing, and some of the briefings that I've had on the XEMU suggests that that's what NASA is depending on at this point in time. It's uh, time-consuming and energy-consuming and does not do much of a job. In fact, I I don't think it gets rid of anything significant. Uh, And the the second uh, impact is the disabling of moving parts on various tools. 
Uh, and the solution there is a far beyond me, but it's good engineering. You just can't have connectors that uh, for tools that are going to be exposed to dust. Uh, by our uh, end of our second EBA, the extension handle connection to the various tools was inoperable. Uh, and the adjustment on the scoop uh, was also inoperable. Uh, so uh, somebody needs to come up with a great idea about how to keep dust out of those connectors. Uh, now, a possible solution, uh, replacement parts, but there's a mass penalty for doing that. And uh, you might take the, the connectors into the cabin and clean, clean them between each EVA. Uh, neither one of those are very ideal, but there are possible uh, interim solutions until we come up with good engineering. Uh, An in-cabin defense against rogue dust, there, some dust almost certainly will get into the cabin. The idea of a layered defense is to keep most of that out. But uh, as far as inhalations are concerned, if you have a good filtering system, just don't take the helmets off until the cabin air is largely filtered. Uh, I have suggested on other occasions after Larry Taylor and I had discussed this uh, for many years is the use of electromagnetic filters uh, with an off function for cleaning, uh, either moist cloth or sticky tape or some other uh, system uh, can be worked out. A disposable uh, dust trapping fabric on the floor surface uh, but uh, you have to remember that that ascent cutoff, dust on the floor and everywhere else will need to be filtered out of the cabin. That may be the point where the filtering system gets its highest impact uh, in terms of massive dust. Now, just some reminders, uh, about 50% of the dust is less than 100 microns, uh, and about 1% is less than one micron. And that is probably the dust that we need to be most concerned about from a physiological point of view. More on that in a moment. The agglutinate particles, uh, which are up to 50% in some samples, uh, have jagged fractal surfaces. The specific gravity of the particles varies, and, and, and this is between 2.6 for glass and 4.2 for ilmenite. And actually, that 2.6 is probably high. Uh, the, uh, uh, and it's high because uh, these agglutinated glasses are vesicular. Uh, they have uh, holes in them that uh, uh, will reduce that specific gravity. Uh, but remember that it's the, the specific gravity of particles we have to deal with in the cabin is not the specific gravity of the regolith itself. Uh, they are the specific gravity of the individual particles. Now, each particle is magnetic. There's nanophase iron and coatings on almost every particle. Uh, each particle has unsatisfied electron bonds, which out uh, in the uh, lunar environment makes it slightly cohesive. But in the cabin, and once it absorbs cabin air, uh, that cohesiveness uh, will disappear. Disturbed in situ lunar dust does not billow. Every once in a while you hear somebody talk in terms of that suggests they have assumed that it's billowing uh, during landing, it's not. They're ballistic trajectories, everything moves away uh, from the force that uh, has uh, accelerated it. The uh, five to 10% of individuals have some allergic reaction 
uh, from mild to severe. Now, we don't have a large uh, large in on that uh, estimate. Uh, I uh, had a little bit of, of a hay fever uh, symptom when I inhaled the dust, uh, and that gradually went away over three excursions. Uh, but there was one uh, a flight surgeon who was assigned to remove the suits from the command module after it was splashed down, who, could, who had such a reaction that he could not continue, and, and he needed to be replaced to do that job. So there are uh, issues here that are in, uh, individual, and, uh, and so you don't want to have a chronic exposure to this dust. On the other hand, there's no evidence of permanent physiological dam damage uh, with astronauts, and we've had really uh, 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 at least four times six inhalations on uh, six crewmen, uh, the uh, J mission, the Apollo 15, 16, and 17, uh, had the most inhalations, and to my knowledge, there's never been any evidence that those inhalations have caused any physiological problem. Initially, high surface bearing strength outside uh, decreases with traffic. All you have to do is look at the photographs to see how the, the surface of the dust uh, fluffs up. And long-term uh, stabilization of those surfaces is going to have to be dealt with. And finally, uh, the uh, adhered and uh, embedded solar wind particles uh, Hydrogen, helium, carbon, and nitrogen uh, can be present and are probably are present in most regolith uh, at 10 to uh, at 100 to 200 parts per million, which means that about uh, close to 1% of the uh, uh, regolith will have solar wind volatiles uh, either adhering or embedded in it. Uh, now, mm -hmm. at the uh, north and south poles, the uh, there is a question about uh, what else might be there, and so some ice particles might uh, be in that dust. We'll just have to wait and see once we get there and have a chance to sample it. Just to remind you that scientifically, there's some good slips, some good dust. Average particle size of the uh, pyroclastic ash that we discovered at Shorty Crater was uh, less than uh, 40 microns. Uh, most of that uh, ash actually turns out to have been shards of beads of glass, and those shards would be, of course, uh, much more of concern if we run into some extensive areas of pyroclastic ash. And with that, I'd be happy to take any questions that we have time for. Great. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, we have time for um, a quick question from Jeff Gillis-Davis. Um, he asks, is the lack of permanent damage, I think he's referring to the physiological damage, uh, related to the short duration of exposure, um, and what can we expect for longer-term exposures of weeks to months? Well, I think, uh, you know, clearly our experience here on Earth uh, with silicosis and other things says that you don't want to have uh, long-term exposure to uh, any kind of, of uh, mineral dust. Uh, and so we need to uh, make sure that, that those inhalations don't occur over a long period of time. I'm just saying that uh, with the four inhalations that I had and several and many of my colleagues had, uh, there's no evidence of, of any uh, physiological damage that I'm aware of. Now, that's something for the uh, physiologist to uh, confirm. Unfortunately, we did not we did not enter into we did not have in our longitudinal studies 
the right protocols in order to really analyze that issue. The question is, with the Artemis missions fast approaching, how do we evolve dust mitigation technology before the landings? It's a fair question, but not all the technologies need to be ready by 2024. Uh, so first, uh, you know, for the earlier missions, what you'll see is a very heavy operations and architecture focus on dust mitigation approaches uh, with a, a few technologies. And then as time goes on, you'll see more of these advanced technologies be integrated into lunar exploration. Two people are considering the innovation needed are Jorge Nunes and Ben Greenhagen, who work in the space exploration sector of the Applied Physics Laboratory of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. They refer to ISRU, which means In-Situ Resource Utilization. NASA FTMD created the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative as a means to develop technologies that are needed to return humans to the surface of the moon and what investments are needed to develop these technologies and mature them. And so they concentrated on these six focus areas that they identified as a need of some of these uh, investments, institute resource utilization, surface power, extreme access, uh, surface excavation and construction, and lunar dust mitigation and lunar dust mitigation technology. And so, which is the area that um, the facilitator, the focus area, uh, and also extreme environment. And so, what is the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium? And so, the goal of the consortium, and NASA approached uh, APL to stand up the consortium, which is the goal is to really harness the creativity and energy and resources of all the different stakeholders. And so, this includes academia, industry, nonprofits, and government in order to really keep NASA and the United States at the forefront of lunar exploration. And so one of the, the key goals, right, is to identify lunar surface technology developments that are in most need of support and investment to, and be able to provide the communication between NASA and the community of what those needs are. And so with that, right, we hope that the ELSIC serves as a resource, right, not only for uh, gathering and dissemination of information, results, and also documentation, but also provide feedback uh, to NASA. So within the dust mitigation focus group, right, as we mentioned, right, the goal is to connect and harness creativity of the different stakeholders, right, to advance dust mitigation technology that will enable exploration of the lunar surface and the return to the moon. And so we also identify needs Right, and determine how do I address those critical challenges to NASA's dust mitigation needs. And so some key questions that are guiding this dust mitigation focus group, right, is what is the lunar dust environment, and in particular, as it relates to the lunar poles, right? Also, what, what, what role does water uh, play with regards to uh, dust? Also, since this is focused on dust mitigation technologies, right, what dust is technologies are needed to enable operations on the lunar surface, right? uh, which dust mitigation technologies already exist, right? are there things that are already have been developed, are there things that are in the commercial sector that could be adapted for applications to the moon, also what gaps remain right? that are in need of investment, and so which dust mitigation technologies need to be developed, uh, and what is the pathway 
to develop these technologies so that we can get them to a level for flight. And then also, how can NASA STMD mature these technologies? And so within the dust mitigation focus area, right, there's sort of six overarching technologies areas that are going to identify, right? Optical systems, thermal systems, like radiators, surfaces, fabrics, like suit fabrics, mechanisms, like actuator, joints, valves, seals and soft goods, like hatches, hoses, and then also areas of gaseous filtration, like, for example, like how they relate to ISRU processes. And so now I'm going to uh, hand the baton to Ben, who will talk about efforts that are going on within his focus area. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm the facilitator for the Extreme Environments Focus Group. And so we're really, you know, focusing on how the environment is a challenge to sustainable operations uh, on the lunar surface. And so here you can see some questions uh, that are very similar to what Jorge uh, showed for dust mitigation, uh, more in extreme environments light. But the uh, the takeaway here is is how we're going about uh, addressing these questions. So we've identified a series of tasks that we're going to start that we have started carrying out. Uh, to kind of go through in a systematic way to characterize uh, the extreme environment uh, in terms of what the requirements are for technology development. That's our first task. And then what the, uh, the capabilities, needs, gaps are in our second uh, task. And our third task is evaluating uh, and identifying facility needs, access, and what's currently available. And similarly to DUST, we also have uh, different kind of sub-focuses. We've actually broken our focus group up into subgroups that have um, leaders from the community that are leading each of these groups through task one. Our different subgroups are thermal environment, so that's how the day-night is different, how polar is different from equatorial. We also have illumination environment, communications environment, uh, solar wind plasma environment, radiation environment, vacuum environment, surface and subsurface interactions, and then other external uh, hazards. And so, in terms of how of regolith specifically, both surface and subsurface regolith, we have there is some overlap here that we're we're working out. So, in terms of extreme environments, the our community is, has decided that we're really going to focus on the intrinsic properties of the lunar surface, except for dust, because dust is so important. It gets its own focus group, the dust mitigation uh, mitigation focus group. So, so if it's an intrinsic property of the surface, such as the toxicity of the regolith, or glassiness of the regolith, or organic content of the regolith. Uh, porosity variations, temperature-dependent properties. Those are things that we are going to keep within extreme environments. But if it's related to actively doing things on the surface or to the lunar surface, those would go in two of our other focus groups that we haven't really talked about much. Extreme access for issues related to navigation, trafficability, getting into and out of these special environments, and excavation and construction for things like subsurface stratigraphy, how you operate in confined environments, and things like that. So uh, dust and regolith, uh, although there, there's a lot of activities in extreme environments and dust mitigation, also against these other areas as well. One of the technologies being considered to remove dust from spacesuits is called a gecko skin lint roller. Hello. I'm Colby Merrill, and I will be presenting the experimental results of gecko skin-inspired dust removal technology. The accumulation of lunar regolith on spacesuits and spacecrafts poses major challenges for our future long-duration exploration of the moon. So our lab uh, is working on developing a 
dust removal technology inspired by the common terrestrial lint roller uh, and we're wrapping it in a synthetic gecko skin is literally a lint roller wrapped in our uh, silicone gecko skin adhesive. Um, gecko skin draws its adhesion from its grippy microtopography. So it's a bit different from most adhesives in that it does not, it is not a chemical adhesive, but rather it is a mechanical adhesive. And for that reason, it's very useful in a space environment because it should not outgas like other adhesives would in a vacuum. Uh, so we're looking at the reusability of our gecko skin adhesive. So we're taking this lint roller and we're rolling it across a surface. And what we're looking to do here is see if the efficacy drops at all as, as the lint roller gets more and more dirty. And it doesn't really, uh, it, the gecko skin adhesive roller really picks up quite a bit of the, the baking flour that we have here um, in all of the rolls. Um, we use baking flour specifically because it is clumpy, which is similar to lunar dust. And these images were analyzed in MATLAB to determine the efficacy in a very precise manner. And we used a lab bench because it's supposed to simulate um, any smooth surface in space, uh, specifically spacecrafts. And we're looking to mitigate the dust on those um, a lot. And what we found here is that even after two rolls, so effectively you have two full um, removals of a, a great bit of flour, the lunar dust roller is still able to clean greater than 90% of the, of the surface area. Uh, but we also wanted to look at spacesuits um, and how our roller works on those. So the, this is a similar experiment, um, cinnamon on a spacesuit. We had to switch to cinnamon because um, well, you need a dark background and a light substance or vice versa. Uh, for image processing to work uh, the way we want it to. And here the gecko skin roller is very effective once again. Um, this time we didn't do a three roll section next to a three roll uh, non-clean section. This time it was five, but it was a bit easier because we would sprinkle the cinnamon on between each roll. And so what we have here is 10 trials of five rolls, and we have this characteristic decay. But the, um, the initial efficacy of this, of the gecko skin roller on a, on a spacesuit is very similar to that um, of a smooth surface with being greater than 90%. And cinnamon is quite grainy. Um, it doesn't really clump together like baking flour and lunar regolith does. So this is kind of an underestimate of how effective a, um, a lint roller wrapped in gecko skin adhesive would be at picking up um, lunar regolith specifically. So in conclusion, our gecko skin adhesive roller is highly effective on flat surfaces and spacesuits, 
it's compact and it's familiar and intuitive because it's designed after this very handy thing that most people on earth I'm willing to bet have used before. It's pretty durable as well. Um, it's not very hard to clean. Uh, the future in the future, we're looking into using other molds of gecko skin adhesive. Our lab uses what's basically the most basic version of gecko skin adhesive. And so really it can only go up from here. And we're also looking into finding alternative substitutes for lunar regolith. And of course, we'll be testing it in vacuum very soon. Liquid nitrogen is also being considered to remove lunar dust from spacesuits. Hi, my name is Ian Wells, and I'm an undergraduate researcher at Washington State University. Today, I'll be presenting the use of liquid nitrogen to remove lunar regolith simulant from spacesuit simulant. On the Apollo missions, Lunar dust was found to be abrasive, toxic, and insulating, making it a hazard to astronaut health and equipment. With this in mind, NASA has sought dust mitigation strategies. We believe that liquid nitrogen is an effective tool to remove lunar dust from spacesuits. Today, I'll discuss the background, methodology, and results of testing so far. Starting with background. Traditional methods of dust mitigation are ineffective with lunar dust. Brushing and vacuuming, in addition to being ineffective, are uh, harmful to suit material, causing abrasion and uh, seal malfunctions. Non-cryogenic liquids and gases have also been tested, but have found to be simply ineffective. Liquid nitrogen appears to be effective and we believe this is due to the Leidenfrost effect. The Leidenfrost effect is where a liquid is far enough above its boiling point and evaporating gas around the liquid begins to insulate it. This tends to form droplets, which in our case pick up dust and transport it to the lowest point on a surface. Moving on to methodology, to mimic spacesuit material, we have used a Kevlar weave, which we have verified against PBI orthofabric. To mimic lunar dust, we have used Mount St. Helens ash, which we have verified against near highland simulant from off-planet research. To apply liquid nitrogen, we have used a Brymill cryogun loaded with liquid nitrogen. The variables that we tested are angle, distance, and time of application, as well as cleaning method. For our analysis, we have done a mass percent removal and a confidence interval on the mean mass percent removal. So for our results, the optimum cleaning tool was a liquid nitrogen spray from the Brymill cryogun. The optimum angle of cleaning was 105 degrees. The optimum distance of cleaning was 400 millimeters. The optimum time of cleaning was 20 to 40 seconds. So in conclusion, our hypothesis is upheld. Liquid nitrogen appears to be an effective tool for lunar dust mitigation on spacesuits. Based on the amount removed, we uh, are able to conclude that approximately 90% of particles below 10 microns are being removed with the cryogun. Extrapolating from the amount of liquid nitrogen used uh, per test with the cryogun, 
approximately two kilograms of liquid nitrogen are needed for a full clean of a spacesuit, which is significantly less than what is needed to pressurize an airlock uh, with the same dimensions as the Joint Quest airlock on the ISS. Future testing is going to focus on nozzles, atmospheric conditions, specifically pressure, and then building a small scale prototype of what we could use to implement liquid nitrogen in an airlock. So in conclusion, liquid nitrogen is an effective tool. Thank you. Sharon Miller of the Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio, is considering passive dust mitigation technologies. I'm Sharon Miller, and I'm going to be discussing some of the passive dust mitigation technologies that NASA is developing under the Patch Plate Materials Compatibility Assessment Task. Lunar dust was one of the biggest issues the astronauts faced during Apollo uh, because it's charged by the solar wind and also triboelectric forces from moving through it, and it causes it to adhere well to surfaces. Uh, the movement of the dust from opposite charged regions at the day and night terminators uh, can also cause dust lofting. Dust is uh, very angular, um, so it's lacking the natural erosion from wind and water like on Earth, so it stays uh, sharp and it's very abrasive. And a good example of that is where a portion of the leg of Harrison Schmidt's Apollo 17 pressure garment assembly uh, had a hole worn in it uh, from the dust rubbing back and forth. Our goal is to develop several passive approaches to mitigate lunar dust adhesion. Test them out on the ground and also in a flight to the lunar surface. And generally for lunar dust, the energy barrier uh, to charge transfer is low in one direction. So there's a buildup of charges that occurs on the surface, causing electrostatic attraction. The idea behind work function matching coatings is that the work function coating is very similar to the lunar dust, and the energy barrier is the same in both directions, so that there's more of a randomized charge transfer and no buildup of charge, which causes the dust to uh, stick well to the surface, so it's a little easier to remove. Uh, for the low energy and low surface contact coatings, the idea is to use surface morphology, um, and this is a biomimicry idea from a lotus leaf, as that the lotus leaf has a very fine surface texture, and so the dust has a low, very low contact area to the top of the surface, uh, so there's not much for it to cling to, and it's easier to remove. The same kind of idea is uh, similar for laser ablation patterning uh, for metals and polymers and ceramic surfaces where uh, instead of putting a coating on the surface, you're creating a pattern in the material itself of different widths and, and spacing so that you can have a low contact area for large particles as well as small particles. You can see um, non-woven fabrics we're also looking at for spacesuits. And this is a way to prevent um, the dust from getting down into the weave in the open holes within the weave and sticking in there where as the fabric moves back and forth, it can create uh, a point for wear. Uh, so the idea with the non-woven is that the dust will sit on the surface and not embed itself in or pass through.
These passive dust mitigation concepts are being tested at uh, various NASA centers uh, using a lunar simulant, and then they're being characterized for the amount of uh, simulant that was removed, either by mass measurement or imaging, and some performance-based measurements uh, like changes in optical and thermal properties. Uh, an example of one of the chambers is the lunar dust adhesion bell jar, which a few of the dust mitigation techniques which are being developed are going to be tested on the lunar surface as part of the Alpha Space Regolith Adherence Characterization Experiment. Uh, the experiment will launch in 2023 and it will be going to Mare Crisium on the Firefly Blue Ghost lander. There we have it. Lunar dust is a big problem. Much thought is going into how to mitigate it. There is unlikely to be a single solution.